Hey, thanks for listening to the Mission Hills podcast. This is a special conversation that our community had with author and speaker Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove here live. There's a Q&A portion in this conversation, and those asking the questions weren't liked, so it's been edited to get Jonathan's responses. Uh, I hope you enjoy it, and thanks for listening. Stood his ground, because that's what made the white people back in South Carolina feel like he was really representing them. And... Uh, he had led the movement of those uh, old white Dixiecrats into the Republican Party uh, uh, in the late 1960s um, and uh, was very much carrying on the same kind of politics he always had, but without the old, you know, racialized language. And I got into that office and began to uh, sort of see this movement from the inside and uh, was feeling some type of way about, well, wait a second. Wait a second, like, you know, I had grown up, folks had, you know, we had Martin Luther King holiday and, you know, mama taught us all to be colorblind and this was supposed to be in the past. But lo and behold, like these echoes of history were very much in the present. We just didn't talk about it in the same way. And I was very confused by that. I didn't know quite what to make of it. But but I was so confused that I kind of came to a dead end of that um, Understanding I had grown up with. It, it, it didn't work for me anymore, and I wasn't sure what uh, an alternative was. And uh, at that point in my life, uh, I was really fortunate to meet uh, a pastor back in North Carolina named William Barber, who was preaching at a, a, a church in Goldsboro, North Carolina, uh, but was the uh, kind of heir of uh, parents and grandparents who had been, uh, you know, church-based, faith-rooted organizers in the Southern Freedom Movement for really several generations. And um, in my confusion, I reached out to him, and he began to teach me what his father had taught him, right, about how um, there was another way of being Christian in the South. Uh, it, um, he reached back to the uh, period after the Civil War and talked a lot about what happened in North Carolina during Reconstruction. And I started to learn about how, um, you know, when the state was readmitted to the Union, um, we had to have a new constitution in North Carolina. And in our state, uh, the two primary authors of that constitution were pastors in 1868. One, a white Congregationalist minister, and the other one, a black AME Zion preacher. That's still the constitution in North Carolina written by a black pastor and a white pastor in 1868 and when you start reading it with that in mind it kind of it kind of comes to life like our our constitution in north carolina hadn't had any of that like lofty human rights language that's in the declaration of independence so so uh so they pick up that language but uh they 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 alter it that language is so familiar to us you know from jefferson we hold these truths to be self-evident that all they don't say men they say all persons are created equal. Here's a white pastor and a black pastor sitting together in 1868 saying, we, we, uh, that's not quite right. We need to change that. You can see how they're editing, right? They say uh, that among these rights are uh, life, liberty, and then they insert this in, the just fruit of one's own labor and the pursuit of happiness. Because right? J.W. Hood knew, even though he had come down from Nova Scotia and had been a church planter. He had never been enslaved, but he knew that he had been sent to, to represent enslaved people, formerly enslaved people. And for generations, the fruit of their labor had been stolen from them. Their very bodies had been stolen from them. And he said, if we're going to have a new state, if we're going to have a new constitution, that has to be a constitutional guarantee, right? So Reverend Barber started, you know, taking me over to the state house with the black workers for social justice. And when they demanded, you know, a, a living wage of our state legislature, they said, this isn't just something we want. This is in our constitution. Like, you know, let's, let's look at these, these, these um, uh, things that were written in. And that, for me, uh, kind of opened my eyes to the way that there's these, you know, two very different ways of interpreting um, this you know, the same Bible, these same songs that we've sung, you know, and the white folks were over here clapping on one and three and the black folks were clapping on two and four. And, and you know, the, but, 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 but how, do we, how do we make sense of the way that this racial identity that was uh, 
written onto people in order to justify an economic system, uh, how that had reshaped faith. And uh, so I went back and started studying uh, in the slaveholding period how uh, the people who who pastored slaveholders, who taught in seminaries that were funded by slaveholders, how they uh, interpreted scripture uh, to justify what, looking back, uh, almost everyone will agree today was uh, not only wrong, but, uh, you know, in the Christian language, sin. Sin, to to claim to own other human beings, to uh, uh, call them chattel and therefore... Uh, as uh, their property holders to, to for people to do whatever they wanted to do to people. I mean, the, uh, the violence of that. And yet, when we look closely um, at how the justification uh, was made, the people who argued that it was right argued that it was a good thing, right? They argued that it's actually better that folks got enslaved and brought here than if they had been left in Africa where they would have died and gone to hell. That's one of the arguments that gets made uh, when the abolitionists are really pushing the issue. They start saying, no, not only is it acceptable, but it's a good thing. And nobody makes those arguments anymore, but that, that shaped the way we, under, we began to understand what the gospel is, Right? In some ways, the gospel had to become very small. It had to become a, this thing that only uh, uh, touched the heart or touched the eternal destiny, but didn't change anything about bodies in the here and now. And so, uh, so a, a, a lot of my adult life has been about trying to sort out how this legacy of slaveholder religion uh, shaped faith in, in the American context. And how that then uh, shaped so much of the world. Because, you know, I live in the Carolina, Virginia Delta. This is the 400th anniversary of enslaved people being brought to Jamestown. That's on the river, the James River that runs down through Virginia into uh, Norfolk, into the bay. And there's, um, there's Carolina, in Carolina there's rivers, the Tar River and the uh, Cape Fear River that do the same thing. They run through the sort of Piedmont area of those states to the, and, and they, they create the fertile land that's there uh, in eastern Virginia and eastern North Carolina. And that's where the plantation economy was born, right? So all of this got fleshed out by people who considered themselves Christian in this really relatively small place in Virginia and eastern North Carolina. And 400 years later, what I've come to realize more and more is that what was called the plantation economy then is now what we call the global economy. This thing has gone everywhere. And these relationships that were established and the racial identity that was built into law and into structures uh, when those states were still colonies, um, that has become a, a kind of normal way of operating. And the story of this country is the story of, of, of attempts to reconstruct that very broken system. And yet every reconstruction has been resisted in very you know, intentional ways by people who called themselves Christian, right? What is, when reconstruction happens after the Civil War, the reaction against reconstruction is called redemption. That's a theological term. It's preachers who go out and talk about how White supremacy is uh, the mandate of God. It's a moral movement. And you go back and read those sermons, and they talk a lot about taking our country back. Sound familiar? Yeah. And you, and you go into the 20th century, and in many ways, you know, what we call the civil rights movement can be understood as another attempt to build a coalition that could reconstruct democracy, right? Let's have voting rights for everyone. Let's guarantee civil rights, equal protection under the law. That's a lot of what that movement is about. And yet the backlash against it is people who consider themselves Christian, right? Those white citizens councils open their meetings with prayer. Those Ku Klux Klan meetings burned crosses because they thought they were lifting up the Christianity of 
granddaddy and the slaveholders before them that had, you know, stood for their so-called southern way of life. And so the, the, the way that our white supremacy in this country has become so closely tied to, um, to a kind of faith, uh, to a religious tradition that has, I think, twisted the heart of faith, is, uh, uh, I think, the central struggle that American Christianity is grappling with right now. And because that economic system has gone global and the missionaries went with us, this is an issue that is pervading global Christianity, right? I talked for a while with a man named Emmanuel Katangale, who, who had grown up in Uganda. And uh, Emmanuel's parents were uh, uh, refugees from Rwanda, because one of them was Hutu and one was Tutsi. Uh, this was long before the 1990s, so he grew up you know, in the 60s and 70s in Uganda. But when the genocide happened in, in, in the 90s, and uh, you know, everybody was uh, uh, in the United States was talking about the, you know, the, the ancient tribal conflict you know, that has pitted one people against another has, has finally exploded, and these people have you know, hacked their neighbors with machetes. And... Uh, Emmanuel said to me, ancient tribal conflict? What are they talking about? He said, Hutus and Tutsis have been living together for as long as anybody can remember. My mama was a Tutsi. My daddy was a Hutu. He said, this is not an ancient tribal conflict. He said, we learned to hate each other from the Belgian missionaries. Because when they came, they taught us race theory. They said, look at you Tutsis. You're tall people. You have long noses. You look white. You must be superior to these shorter, dark-skinned Hutus with short noses. And they built structures based on that, right? That said Tutsi children would go to the Catholic schools and get an education that would then give them an opportunity in the new government that was being set up, and the Hutus weren't allowed in the schools. But the Hutu were a majority over and against the Tutsi minority. They set up an animosity that created the context for that oppressed majority to fight back. And so when it went across the, 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 the airways, you know, on the, on the radio, they started saying, kill the cockroaches. Everybody knew what that meant, right? But that wasn't ancient, ancient tribal conflict. That was the same race theory that got worked out to justify slavery in the colony of Virginia being exported into Rwanda, which, by the way, in all of the Christian uh, 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 missionary textbooks in the 80s and 90s was celebrated as the most evangelized country in Africa. Right? It's 96% church membership. Everybody was in church. And the, and the genocide started during Easter week. So everybody had been in church on Easter Sunday. And by Thursday of that week, they were going house to house with their machetes, killing one another. Not because of some ancient animosity, but because of a, of a form of identity that got tied with religion in order to justify the enslavement of other people right here in America. So th this, is, this is deep. And this is, uh, I think, a struggle that's you know, bursting out in our public life. And it's not just about one party. I mean, yes, we, this is Super Bowl Sunday, right? Of course, it's a racist thing that Donald Trump has been attacking the NFL and Colin Kaepernick and them. Of course, that's race-based. But so is Ralph Northam this weekend, Democratic governor of Virginia. We've been talking about Virginia. Brother was in blackface in medical school or in the Klan outfit. I still haven't figured out which one he was in. He can't figure it out either. But when, he, but when he tried to apologize, he then had to back that up. And then he had to say that he was dressed up like Michael Jackson or something. Was, I can't make sense of the story. But whatever happened... White supremacy is, is, is such a part of the culture that it doesn't matter whether you're a Democrat or Republican. This is not a partisan thing. This is about the structures of a society that has clearly advantaged some people based on the color of their skin and thereby disadvantaged others and used God to justify that. So that, that I think, is a, 
is a is a moral crisis that we have too long avoided, and in this 400th year, it does seem that it's very much at the fore. Uh, and, and one of the reasons we have to deal with it, I think, um, even the people who haven't wanted to deal with it are beginning to have to deal with it, is because the demographics of this country suggest that we can't pretend to have a democracy for more than the next 15 or 20 years uh, if we continue white supremacy as the default, right? Because there are enough uh, black and brown people in this country now that they say by 2040, uh, white folks are going to be one among many minorities. The, 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 you can't. You could pretend to be a democracy with white supremacy as long as you could get the white folks to vote together. You see, but that ain't going to work anymore. And the Republican Party, especially, knows that's not going to work anymore. Which is why they've been instituting voter suppression measures at the state level for the last eight years, ever since 2010. In that context, the question that I think the American church has to ask is where do we turn for hope? And for me, uh, the great hope is in this tradition of being Christian that has always existed alongside this terribly twisted and corrupted form of slaveholder religion. From the very beginning, there have been those people who have resisted, who have imagined another way. They were, you know, the, the slaveholder preacher who was funded by the plantation owner was there, you know, in the 18th and 19th century. But, but also, out in the brush harbor, there were people who were figuring out that the God who raised Israel out of Egypt had also raised Jesus from the dead. And he was singing a, 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 a sweet chariot to carry us home. And if we sing about that, you know, and talk about uh, where you meet on the riverbank tonight, uh, some people were going to get away to freedom. And that was gospel, too. And that, and, and that tradition is also uh, an American tradition. And that's what informed those preachers who wrote those constitutions in the Reconstruction period, right? They had, they had an imagination that was also deeply rooted in faith and that, and, and that uh, gave them a capacity to see that God cared about justice and that God was going to make a way out of no way and that even when, it didn't, even when they didn't have power, there's a way to imagine organizing and building coalitions. And it wasn't, and it wasn't just black folk, right? The abolitionist movement has some crazy... Quakers that join in and some of these white evangelicals that are just, you know, reading their Bible and getting caught up in the spirit. And, you know, they, they, they get saved and the spirit falls and they fall down and they get up again. When they get up, they're not, they're a little bit crazy. They don't think they're white anymore or, or, or that, you know, they don't, they don't think that they have to uh, side with the, with the folks um, who share their skin tone. And that tradition is also there. That's what I like to call the, um, the tradition of beloved community in this country and, uh, and in the world. And I think it's, uh, it's the great miracle that's happened in this land, you know, that, 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 that people who were brought here by folks who called themselves Christian heard in the same story, you know, good news that God could, could be about their freedom. And uh, and turn that story over, and sh and sh and ha have showed us in so many ways what it means to to really follow the, the the way that Jesus taught and practiced. So, in this moment, the the conversations that I'm most excited about as we face a real crisis, a real crisis in our public common life. You know, I mean, it's all out on the TV every day. We talk about that a lot, but I, in our churches too. You know. The, every church group I meet with in the country right now is uh, trying to figure out what the church is going to become because the fastest growing religious group in the country is the nuns. And we're not talking about the sisters at the convent. We're talking about the N-O-N-E-S, the people who when you ask what is your religious affiliation, they say none. No, I, I'm done with it. I'm done with those hypocrites. You know, I'm done with those folk that that uh, uh, get together and, and, and hate on people or whatever it is. I mean, there's lots of concerns people have. But, 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 but that's another place where we're seeing the kind of death of this 
white Christianity that's been so dominant. And the question is, what's our future going to be? In the midst of this, I think looking to, looking to this tradition of the beloved community and the potential for a, a, a relationship with God that's rooted in a just relationship with our neighbor, that uh, it's about building a, a community in the places where we live. It's also about imagining a different way that we can, that we can be together in this country, in this world, of, you know, a more perfect union and a more just world. All of that, I think, is, is, is possible to reimagine in this faith tradition. And so we can go back and read the Bible again. We can go back and sing the songs again. We can go back and hear it in a different key as we learn to, uh, 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 to disciple ourselves to the wisdom teachers and the, and the, and the mothers and the fathers of this, of this beloved community tradition. So that's what I am inter- most interested in talking with folks about these days. And uh, I'd like to just have a conversation here about what you're grappling with in your communities and uh, where we might draw on this tradition. I mean, um, rather than kind of give you like what I think the top seven lessons are. Let's just talk about what what we're really dealing with, and I'll try to riff on what I've learned from this tradition, and maybe somebody else will have a riff, and maybe by the end here we can have a little jazz ensemble. How about that? But, but what, what's, what itch is scratching you enough that you came out in the rain on a Sunday night to, 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 to talk about what it means to uh, practice Christianity in America today? Yeah. No, I hear you. I hear you, but I also think that um, when you talk about how you know a lot of people are ready to sort of cast religion aside because 81% of white evangelicals voted for Donald Trump, uh, that to me is a representation of how distorted the moral narrative is in this country. Because do you know what percent of the religious community white evangelicals are? They're 17%. Of, the, of, of religious people in this country. They don't represent us, right? They don't represent what most religious people think. But they have convinced the whole country that their quote-unquote moral issues are the moral issues. And, uh, and they've got a lot of corporate money helping them do that, right? But, I, but, but you know, th- that's why the, the, tr- the, beloved tradition, the beloved community tradition is so important to me because it's, there's a long tradition of people who have not had power but have had faith who've said... We don't care if the corporations are backing you. You know, we don't care if the plantation managers are backing you. We know what's right, and we're going to we're going to assert that in, in in public. Now, I think I think where you are right, and I completely agree, is that the existing structures and institutions of the church are by and large not ready to embrace that. And I think that's the way it has been, and it's the way it's going to continue to be. Right? I believe that segregated worship is a good thing. All right. Yeah. 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 No, I'm not, I'm not here advocating for these multicultural mega centers where, you know, black, white, and brown people get together and listen to the white man talk. Yeah. 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 We've got some of those in my town. Yeah, I know what that looks like. No, but, but what I am advocating for is like the poor people's campaign where I see folks coming together around the leadership of mostly people who've been marginalized, right? Folks who were fighting for 15, folks who were fighting for their, you know, their indigenous lands and the right to keep, you know, oil companies from coming through them, uh, 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 service workers uh, and uh, folks who are fighting for health care and uh, coming together and saying, uh, we want the faith community to get behind us. Now, I think there's an opportunity for us to have faith in public life, right? So that's the, that's the kind of thing that I want to see more of. Now, by no means do I want to see these these multicultural, you know, multiculturalism has always been a white idea. Yes. It's right. I, I study philosophy. Immanuel Kant, who imagines the Superman, she calls it, as a, essentially a, you know, a white German who looks like him. Uh, he has in that concept of the Superman, the essentially the concept of multiculturalism, that that that, that the Superman takes the uh, 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 best from every culture. And incorporates it into himself. And he thinks that's him. <laughs> that's, that's the blindness of whiteness, you know, right at the heart of Western philosophy. So, so yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. That, that kind of multicultural dream, you know, that, uh, that frankly, 
is what we've turned Dr. King's dream into in a lot of our public celebrations. You know, this idea that everybody can come together and hold hands. And that's the American ideal. No. Dr. King said we ought to shut down the government until there's a living wage. And that's why they shot him dead. Right? Uh, And he was doing that with poor white folks from Appalachia and poor black folks from Mississippi and Chicanos from out here. Right? All those folks were part of that coalition that was building the Poor People's Campaign 50 years ago. So that's the kind of faith in public life that, that I, I do believe we can lean into and learn from. I don't, think, I don't think in this land that it can be or needs to be exclusively Christian, right? There's, we got Muslim sisters and brothers who believe this too. We got Jewish sisters and brothers. We got Baha'i folk and Sikh folk. And we got people who, who frankly, you know, don't buy the religion thing. But they, got, like, they care about these moral issues too. Uh, it seems to me, as a Christian, who, uh, like when I read the story of Jesus, and like all the good religious folks scratch their heads and say to Herod, yeah, we think he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. And it's actually these, you know, folk from somewhere else who aren't part of their religious tradition who go to Bethlehem and meet him and then have the good sense enough to not go back and tell those people who, you know, were basically just performing for the king. Like that's that to me, like that's it. That's my tradition. My tradition doesn't say you've got to be like me to pursue the truth. As a matter of fact, like we need we need people from other traditions to help us see what the truth is. You know, but the language comes from Howard Thurman, who um, is in this tradition. It's a it's a broad tradition, but I'm I'm rooting it in this notion that people who were on the receiving end of the violence of the plantation economy, who discovered a faith that said, we believe not only is God against this, but God can empower us to resist it. And to resist it in a revolutionary love ethic that doesn't just sort of try to flip everything over. But I think that deep belief that there's the image of God in every one of us, and that therefore we, we can even have some hope that the people who are hurting us right now might, might be transformed. Uh, that, that's the tradition of beloved community that runs th- through this same history. And, uh, you know, we have people like Sojourner Truth and Frederick Douglass who articulate it, uh, and Ida B. Wells and Reverdy Ransom. And, I mean, it's there in Du Bois. It's there in uh, all the folks who taught Dr. King. In many ways, it's what... It, 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 it's what it's the tradition in American popular culture is sort of only known in a few Dr. King speeches that people hear, you know, on holidays. But uh, like he didn't just come out of nowhere; he was drawing on like a deep, deep streams of people who had reflected on what it means to uh, to, to to live out a different kind of faith in this land. So that's 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 what. Um, Thurman, who was a was a important teacher and mentor to King, called the beloved community. Yeah, I mean, I, in some ways, I think um, a temptation of whiteness that has repeated itself over and over again has been to like come up with a new model. I, I think that's kind of the white imagination. When things don't work. We need a new model. Then we'll change the model. Then we'll change the model. And uh, I, I'm not suggesting a model here. I'm suggesting that there has always been another way of imagining things, right? And that, um, and that whatever future we have, I think, depends on leaning into this tradition of, uh, of, of, of imagining faith, of imagining our relationship with God, our relationship with one another, our relationship in public life uh, um, in ways that are informed by this tradition. So um, I think it can look like lots of things, right? I mean, I've, I've been talking about the Poor People's Campaign. I think that in, in public life, that's one thing that's really encouraging to me. But, you know, when I talk to churches these days, I, 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 I think about um, churches that are really reimagining what it means to, um, to be a presence for good news and to, uh, uh, to, to get behind the good things that are happening in their community. 
right? So I, um, there's a guy named Diamon Harges in Indianapolis who I got to know. And uh, Diamon uh, works for a church. He's on staff. His title is he's the roving listener. Have you ever heard of a roving listener? His job is uh, Diamon's from that community, and he wanders around in that community listening for what gifts are in the community. And uh, he's trained a whole lot of other people in that, to be roving listeners. Uh, their church has actually hired young people to be roving listeners in their own communities. And they've built a whole structure around how those roving listeners gather with small groups of people in the congregation to uh, share with them what good is happening in their community and talk together about how the church can bless that. Now, this is a different way of imagining mission, right? This isn't like a, let's take a mission trip over there to where those poor people are, you know, hurting and do something nice for them to make us feel good about ourselves. No, that's not it at all. It's saying this church has, you know, gathered people have some resources. One of the resources we have is just the moral authority to say that's good. And you, you, you look around your neighborhood and you realize, you know, somebody, well, I, the only thing I know about this community because I just got here. But I got here and I was a little bit hungry. And uh, uh, they were kind enough to, to, to go get some tacos. Somebody in this community can make some tacos. They were good tacos. So when you realize that's a gift, like how can, how can gathered people lift that up and bless that? That's a, that's a way of imagining mission. Um, and uh, it, it's, it's been beautiful to, for me to learn from Diamond how like that's, that's kind of reshaped their whole community. So anyway, I'm, I'm trying to, again, kind of like jazz, I'm more trying to uh, think together about how we can riff on this tradition that seems to have always been there and always be life-giving rather than kind of come up with some new model or some new, you know, seven-step program that will lead to success or whatever, you know. <laughs> I'm not trying to lose weight. I'm just trying to live healthy, you know. <laughs> I don't want another plan. <laughs> but I want to, you know. I want to eat good food and eat well and exercise and all. Like, like, you know, I'm drawing a parallel here, but I think you hear what I'm saying. Yeah. Yes. Pastor. I came out on the train tonight because. Yeah, tell us. No, I did. So, one of the reasons that I think this, uh, the history of white supremacy and the way it's dominated our public conversation is important for us to understand is that um, the consistent thing has been that white supremacy is held onto power by pitting people against one another, right? And the there have been different forms of that. But the present form of that, for the last 40 years really, uh, has been to pit uh, so-called progressives against so-called traditional values, people, right? And you mentioned the abortion issue. Uh, that was one that folks focused on who were, who were really designing that division because um, they thought it was kind of gold. They thought, you know, who, if we can call ourselves pro-life, who can be against that? Who's going to be pro-death? You know? Right, right. So, 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 so that, was in, that was an intentional framing. But in many ways, it did not represent the conversations that had actually been happening in so-called traditional uh, communities in the 1970s, right? Go back and read, for example, the, uh, the uh, publications of the Southern Baptist Church after Roe v. Wade. I've gone back and read them. They, it wasn't like all the Southern Baptists were against Roe v. Wade. They were just thinking about it practically, right? They were saying, you know, there were some people who said, well, yes, like, you know, in terms of cultural values, um, uh, the fact that you know life is terminated is a concern, but on the other side, in the same tradition, there were people who were saying, "But yes, there are real circumstances where you know uh, uh, women have to make very difficult choices, and people knew people who had you know." But there, there was like a reasonable conversation about how like this is complicated. In the, I'm saying in the traditional, like in what's now considered the traditional streams, you know, the, the so-called conservative streams. Um, but the, 
the whole pro-family, pro-life movement that emerged and that was really uh, corporately funded and became the so-called religious right, uh, it was a very intentional effort to use that issue to give people a way to understand themselves, to understand their identity that would be about perpetuating white values as traditional values, right? So that becomes the like one that becomes the like one moral issue that that we can feel good and stand up about when the the very same people who were doing that in say you know 1978 79 and, and, and 80 had been just 15 years prior like the senator I worked for had 15 years prior been giving speeches where they said segregation forever right and they didn't say they didn't say well, actually, that, I was very wrong. And, you know, no. They, they, they used traditional values as code words to the people who had always known what they were saying to say, this is how we're going to say this now, right? So when I think about the polarization in that context, then it's not about finding a middle ground as much as it's about going deeper, right? We got to get to the root of this, like. This is not about saying, like, you've got some truth, you've got some truth, we'll find something in the middle. No, no, no. This has been misframed, right? we gotta, we got re, to reframe this. And I think that's where the church has a real capacity to say, now let's talk about what the moral issues are, right? I mean, we got a text. If you read the prophets, you know, justice, mercy, love, you know, the, these things have to matter, now, c- clearly, there's going to be, you know, issues in public life where people are going to have different political traditions and they're going to have to, we're going to have to sort these things out. But, I mean, if Micah says, do justice, love, mercy, and walk humbly with your God, we ought to be able to be clear that there's some forces in this society that have no value for humility, right? They have no value for justice. Greed is the bottom line. And... uh and those things, I think we have to resist. So, I, I, in my take, I mean, I think there's a way of, yeah, of, 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 of really, again, shifting this moral narrative and saying we've got a real core to claim and, and that we're going to do that together with other people who claim it. Because, again, it's like it's not just Christians. We can share this with other folks from other traditions. Yeah, I mean, it was the, it was the plantation owner that paid the preacher's you know, in the 19th century, and it's the it's the uh, folks that got their corporate tax cut from Donald Trump that are back in you know so, so many of these today. So yeah, I mean, part of part of telling the truth is finding uh, some new base, you know, and I think it's a uh, I think it means yeah, communities are going to have to look different. Right? We're going to have to find different ways uh, of being together. But again, I think uh, there is a tradition of people who have stood up for something without having the uh, access to power and money or to a lot of it. Right? Like, I mean, like I look at the abolitionist struggle and I think like they didn't have a whole lot of people, but they had some. Right? Even you find some good, you find some good people with a little bit of money. That are willing to that are willing to join, and uh, and we got to make space for them, you know, as long as they're not trying to take over, you know. To, um, there's a guy from there's a guy from our neighborhood back home who started this little company. He calls it Good Money, <laughs> and his slogan is "Not all money is good money," <laughs> which is very true. But but we I mean you know we can have enterprise. We can have we we can try to do business that serves the community and we can try to have partnerships with businesses where where we say you know we're going to have an honest we're going we're going to have an honest living we're going to pay people a living wage and we're going to try to invest that in i, I mean you know that's a base right and uh, i i really don't think many communities in the history of this country have been better at that than the black community i mean this, this sense that like you know we're going to spend our dollars in our communities. Now, a lot of, lot of African-American communities, especially in the South, will tell you that desegregation actually hurt that, right? 
because it, it took money out of the community and, and people started spending it at the white owned businesses. But, um, but I think we can lean into that tradition in a way that, uh, that, that, that says, yeah, if we, if we're part of a, if we're part of a, mo- of a movement for building up community and justice in our places, then let's, uh, let's be a pop- about building the economic base for that. Right. Let's be about having some honest jobs where people are making an honest living and investing some of that back into the community that creates a, a base for having a different kind of witness in that community. Maybe this is good news. I don't know, but it's been good news to me. Like, I think if you try to think your way out of that problem, it is depressing. But it was like a real relief to me to realize that um, there were, f- you know, fairly um, um, direct answers to that particular problem that you're addressing um, from the very beginning of public preaching in the black church tradition, uh, you know, after 1865, right, when these churches were established. Uh, you, you can go back and read the preaching, and there was like a direct claim that the gospel was political. Um, and the amazing thing is, I mean, this isn't amazing to anybody in that tradition, but to someone who like thinks that this is a deep theological problem, that uh, the preachers uh, who emerged in that period, none of them had any seminary education. <laughs> but they had read the Bible in the context where it was absolutely clear to them that the cross of Jesus was a political act and that for them it meant uh, the necessary public work of liberation. Um, so that's a tradition that, that, is, that is actually uh, named by scholars now as the black social gospel. And you can read about it, like there are whole books about it, uh, have gathered together, you know, those early sermons and then eventually theological works and eventually, you know, folks did go to seminary and um, I mean, that's a huge that's a huge contribution of the 20th century that, you know Al Rabito goes and, and writes slave religion because he defies his advisors and says, no, no, no you know, my grandmama and great grandmama they were theologians, even if they didn't write books, and I can write a book about their theology by by leaning into the uh, oral traditions and the songs that were passed down. And, and so we, we begin to have that, you know, J- James Cone's the father of black theology. And there's a whole school of folks who come out of that. Like there, there's a lot we can draw on. Um, but I, but as I read that tradition, it has a very specific answer to that particular problem you named from, from its beginning. Like, yeah. Um, and in a lot of ways, I think, you know, the inherited categories we have for naming these things, like whether it's, you know, substitutionary atonement or whatever else, um, like the text itself, the biblical text itself, and like the uh, 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 sort of basic doctrinal pieces uh, of the early tradition, um, White supremacy had a capacity to uh, twist all of those things to serve its agenda, right? And so, in some ways, it's it, to me, it's not so much about sorting out like, you know, a better among the options out there as it is seeing how it was misused and realizing that it can be reimagined uh, from a different context, from a different perspective. So, I hope that's helpful. I've learned a lot from the folks in that tradition that has made me be able to say, you know, uh, I don't need to, like, throw out the tradition. I just need to hear it filtered through another lens, right? I need to hear it through somebody else's experience. But one of the things, I mean, you, you said lots of important things, but one thing I was just reminded of listening to you, uh, especially that story about the Sunday after Charlottesville, is that um, as I've come to understand the legacy of white supremacy and its relationship to Christianity, it really does have two forms in the American story. 
One is the, um, the violent and explicitly white supremacist Christianity you know, that justifies what it is. And you, know, you see that especially when uh, a resistance movement grows up, right? So you see that in the redemption movement that overturns you see that in the white preachers that were preaching against Dr. King, right? You, you see it at times. But the other form is the form that I think um, assumes white supremacy and spiritualizes the gospel message uh, to mostly ignore what's happening, right? And that has often been the case when people feel relatively comfortable, right? Um, it's actually uh, an official position that emerges in the conflicts that led up to the Civil War, right, um, among uh, churches that didn't want to divide over the issue. They end up saying, well, no, we're going to be spiritual Christians, right? We're going to leave those matters to the state. Um, and that's often the way Christianity gets fleshed out. But, but I think that's also slaveholder religion, right? That's also that legacy living on uh, by, you know, White folks knowing that this is a system that is going to advantage them, and they can uh, have the gospel be about something else. Yeah. But again, you know, to this, uh, I think we're coming close to the end of our time here. I don't want to miss my flight back home tonight. I've got to, I've got to go back to North Carolina. But um, I think that as I listen tonight, uh, the question that I hear you all asking is really one about hope. Uh, I've heard several people say, you know, this can be depressing. Um, and I think, like, that's part of lament, right? Part of really looking at honestly at something that is painful and wrong is, is saying, yeah, this, like, this really is bad and it really is pervasive. And there's not some easy fix. So, like, I don't in any way want to uh, ever pretend that we don't have to go through that as, as people and as communities. Um, but the, I guess the, the, from, from my experience and from what I see happening in other places, I would only add that, like, while I think that lament is extremely important, I'm also really encouraged by folks who are standing up in, in this tradition. Uh, uh, I think about Ruby Sales. Do you all know Ruby Sales? Ruby's still with us. She was in Lowndes County, Alabama as a student in uh, 1965. And they locked her and a guy named Jonathan Daniel and some others who, who had uh, been trying to register folks for uh, to vote there. And when they let them out of the jail, they went to the little store in town just to try to get, like, something to eat before they headed out. And um, the guy behind the counter, you know, pull, pulled out his shotgun, and uh, Jonathan stepped in front of Ruby, and he shot Jonathan, killed him. Um, but Ruby survived, and, uh, you know... She was just talking the other day at Middle Church up in New York, and she said, um, she said that she really believes that what's more important than this wall that we keep arguing about is the spiritual wall. She started talking about the sp spiritual wall that, um, that, that, that some people want to build up between us. And, you know, I, mean, I guess Ruby's got to be pushing 80 by now, but Ru Ruby said... Like, I've seen enough to know that that, like, that wall has been torn down. I don't believe in that wall. I'm not going back to that wall. And uh, I think there's a kind of spiritual depth from folks like that that we can really lean into, right? Uh, these folks who have really trusted a God who can make a way out of no way, you know? And so, you know, we look hard at the realities and we see that, you know, uh, the, the, the forces of division do have a lot of money. They do have a lot of power. And frankly, they've uh, shaped our institutions and our, uh, our laws in ways that, um, that can feel insurmountable. But, uh, uh, but 
I just want to lean into these folk who, uh, who stood up against much greater odds and, and, and said, you know, uh, before I'd be a slave, I'll be buried in my grave and go home to my Lord and be free. You know, that, that, that's the kind of faith that kind of gets me up in the morning these days. I want to, I want to learn that faith. Because uh, if, you know, if Harriet Tubman could get 500 folk out of slavery and, and, and uh, at least one story one time was that she, she sat in the abolitionist office in New York and, uh, and begged until she got $20 from somebody <laughs> and, so she could go back one more time, right? If you could do that with next to nothing, you know, and a, and a Bible under your arm and the moss on the north side of the tree, and that's about all you got. If surely, if she can do that, we uh, who 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 sometimes you know we feel like the, the we're up against giants, but my Lord, we got a building to meet in. We got lights on. We got Twitter, Facebook. I don't I don't know if it helps or not, but anyway, we got we got some resources. Uh, we I I, th- I think we can lean in and. Uh, draw some courage from these folks who've gone before us. Um, so it's good to be with y'all. One of the reasons I keep singing the songs that have been passed down to us is that I hear that I hear that kind of hope against all hope in those songs. Right? You know, you don't sing we are not afraid. We are not afraid. We are not afraid because you're not afraid. Right. <laughs> you sing it because you're scared to death. And until you got a song that can, you know, at least give you enough courage to take the next step, you uh, you don't have anything. So I pray we can keep singing and and uh, keep learning. And I'm grateful for this time to be with y'all. Can we close out with a song tonight? Who's who's got one on your spirit? Anybody want to lead us in a song? All right, we shall not, we shall not be moved. We shall not, we shall not be moved. Just like a tree that's planted by the water. We shall not be moved. We're standing up for justice. We shall not be moved. We're standing up for justice. We shall not be moved. Just like a tree that's planted by the water. We shall not be moved. One more time. We shall not, we shall not be moved. We shall not, we shall not be moved just like a tree that's planted by the water. We shall not be moved. Amen. Good to be with y'all tonight.